Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 50 through 58. This is Paul. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on the imperishable. And the mortal put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Some of you are familiar with that lovely tune by Doris Day, put out in 1956. It was actually uh, debuted in uh, an Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, it rose to number two on the Billboard Top 100 chart and is sort of known as Doris Day's signature song. And the title of the song is Que Sera Sera, What Will Be Will Be. It's a Spanish language phrase. But contrary to popular belief, the phrase is not Spanish in origin. In fact, it's a mistranslation. If you were actually going to translate it, it would be lo que será, será. It's English in its origin, dating back to about the 16th century. They sort of mistranslated into Spanish. Why? I have no idea. But the song, the statement, que será, será, what will be, what will be, exhibits an attitude of what sociologists have called cheerful fatalism. Essentially a belief, a philosophy that we don't know what the future holds, so therefore we should just live and hope that it works out in the end because we really have no control or knowledge of what will happen. In fact, when you break it down, it's, it's sort of this concept of... Um, who knows what tomorrow brings? And many people live their lives that way. But you see, there are consequences, right, of what we believe. If what will be will be, then we have to ask the question, why am I here? How does it all end? Does really how I live make a difference in the end? Is there any purpose or meaning? See, all too often as life goes on, cheerful fatalism just turns into fatalism or resignation. But for the Christian, our philosophy is totally opposite of that. 
Because God has invaded the earth. He has ransomed his people as his own. And he has a definite foreordained plan for the future of his, of his people, which is using all things for good, of shaping us into the likeness of Christ. So unlike the song, Que Sera Sera, we know what the future will hold. See, it's not whatever will be, will be, but rather what will be, will be. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection give us a certain future, a certain victory, and therefore we can live with a certain purpose. So the question I have for you today is simply this. Are you living in that attitude? Which attitude are you adopting? Cheerful fatalism or certain expectation? Because the grace of God gives us a certain victory and a certain future, let us live with a certain purpose. So those three things, that's what we're going to look at. Number one, what is this certain future that we have? Number two, what is the certain victory that we have in Jesus Christ? And finally, what is this certain purpose that we are supposed to live in today and uh, tomorrow until he comes? So let's look at point number one, a certain future. Paul begins in verse 50 by saying, I tell you this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Remember, Paul has been talking about the resurrection, that there's some that say this is absurd, that the culture that Paul comes from doesn't believe in a bodily resurrection. But Paul has been telling us that just as we were in Adam, our bodies, our destinies in the line of Adam, subject to corruption and the curse of God, that we will bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. When he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not talking that we will be turned into spirits, into ghosts, but rather that which is sustained and animated by what is corruptible, bodies that are of the earth, that are dead because of sin, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is that we must be sustained and animated our new bodies by the Holy Spirit. And we see this in Jesus Christ, don't we, who is raised from the dead, that he has a physical body, He's t- he can be touched, he can be felt, he eats, and yet he is a new body. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of him, of God, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also in the future, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is saying that a transformation will take place and must take place. And now he goes on to talk about how this transformation will happen. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What he's saying is that Christ's second coming will break into history. And at that time, some Christians will have died. He's not saying necessarily within his own generation. But whenever that time comes, there are Christians who have already passed away when Paul is writing this, and certainly now, 2,000 years later. But other Christians will be alive. 
But whether you're sleeping in the sleep of death, your body's sleeping in the sleep of death, or alive, this transformation will occur for all believers. And it will occur in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. This trumpet shows that this is an eschatological event. In the Old Testament, the blowing of the trumpet is associated with the appearance of the Lord. That at the sound of the trumpet, Jesus Christ will appear with his armies. And this transformation will occur, notice, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The word moment is, in Greek, the word atomos, from where we get the word atom, which back then was the the smallest uh, indivisible particle. And we get the concept of a twinkling of an eye, right? The blinking of an eye, that it will happen, this occurrence, this transformation will happen in a flash. That it's not a gradual change from one type of body to the next, but an instantaneous change. Now, notice when he's sharing this, he omits the judgment. We see other passages that talk about the judgment seat of Christ. That doesn't mean that that is not going to happen. He's just not touching on it. He wants to illustrate that this is not some sort of evolutionary process, some sort of gradual change, but a transformation that will happen in the blink of an eye. For this perishable body, verse 33, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. He teaches us about our current bodies, and he talks about this new body, and he uses an illustration of like putting on clothing. It's a clothing imagery. Notice that the old body is not taken off. Only the new body is placed and put on. This is similar to what was just read uh, in our praying the scriptures in 2 Corinthians 5, 2. For while we are in this tent of the body here on earth, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. See, this new body that we are to receive takes the uh, corruptible body and transforms it. Our future glorified bodies are not different bodies, but a different form of the same body much like that illustration of a seed that is transformed into a plant. They're of the same genus, if you will. See, our bodies are not bad in themselves, but they're broken. They're dead because of sin. See, we need to understand a little bit about what the body does. Our body, our outer selves, is an interface between our inner selves and the world. To be a human is to have a soul that is fused to a body. That's what makes us human. It's actually one of the reasons also why the angels envy us, because they don't have a corporeal body. And so our body not only uh, connects the inner to the world, but it also, in this world, affects the inner us, right? You all know when you you have a cold, right? 
and how your spirits and everything starts to get depressed because our bodies are affecting our souls, our spirits. But the body's primary purpose is to take that which is inside and to translate it and animate it into the world that is around me. If I have love in my heart, I act on that love with words, by speaking, with hands, by serving and caring. My body puts into motion and practice that which is inside of me. But we see that in this world, our bodies are dead because of sin. That's Romans 8.10. Paul goes on and talks about uh, in Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, he's speaking of Christians, but I see in my members, my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind, means his soul, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members or in my body. See, there's a resurrection that has already occurred in the Christian in the sense of I am a new creation in Christ, that I have a new spirit, I am a new creation, but I continue to dwell in this old creation, this body of death. That, my friends, is why Christianity is such a struggle. Paul in Romans 7.21 says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now we can overcome this brokenness and death in our body through submission to the Holy Spirit. As Romans 8.13 says, By the Spirit you put to death, uh, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. But there will come a time when this new body is put on. And this old body, which is the repository of this flesh, is transformed. That my body will no longer be animated and empowered by the corruptible, but rather by the Holy Spirit itself. And my resurrected body will be in perfect sync with my resurrected soul. And I will have a glorious body like Christ's. John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when we, he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See, when Christ appears and we are given our resurrected bodies, we will morally be without sin, intellectually be without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfection, and filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. See, there's no question as to if this is going to happen. Indeed, it must happen, and it will happen. The only question is when. What Christ has done for you, if you are a Christian, has put you on a trajectory that will ultimately end in glory. For grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace completed. One of the things I love about Maria, our daughter, is her anticipation for future events, such as Christmas, 
and particularly her birthday, which was October 14th. Maria knows that day, and long before October 14th gets here, she begins to get excited and tell me that I can't wait for my birthday to come. She wants to relish and savor that which is coming and to enjoy the surprises and the things that are going to come. Never does she ever think that day is going to stink. She's excited about the possibilities of what is to be. And though she doesn't exactly know what she's going to get and how it's going to be, she revels in it. But of course, one of the downsides of birthdays is once it's over, it's over. And you have to wait till next year. That it does not last. But you see, my friends, we have a certain future. A certain date with destiny. So what is it that you are anticipating in your life? What are you looking forward to? See, thinking about what will come to pass will actually make you more intentional about today. You think it's the opposite, but it's not. Because thinking about what is certain and will come to pass puts everything in perspective. Are you experiencing struggle right now and difficulty? That is to be expected. And yet we know that there is a finish line. There is a certain future. And so we can endure with the difficulties and the challenges that we face. We all experience disappointments. Dreams that we hoped would occur then come to pass. And yet we can know in this earth that that is not the end. That it is okay that I did not receive that or achieve that or become that, because so much more is waiting for me. It helps us to put in perspective the things and the possessions of this world, to not put our hope in the things of this world. See, if you lay up your treasures on this earth, all of our lives are spent backing away from these treasures. And death signifies loss. But when we lay up our treasures in heaven, we look forward to it, and every day brings us closer to it. Because death is gain. And the person who spends his life moving toward his treasures has reasons to rejoice. So are you despairing or rejoicing? We have a certain future. And the Christian knows that death shall be the funeral of all of our sins, our sorrows, our afflictions, our temptations, our frustrations, our oppressions, and our persecutions. But death shall be the resurrection of all of our hopes, our joys, our delights, our comforts, and contentments. Because the grace of God gives us a certain future, and a certain victory, we can live in a certain purpose. This brings me to my second point, that we have a certain victory that awaits us. Paul says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This comes from Isaiah 25.8 that prophesies that he will swallow up death forever. See, the greatest enemy that you and I face, it's greater than Satan, is death itself. Satan was delegated authority over death to accuse us. But this is what Hebrews 2.14 says. Jesus Christ shared in our flesh and blood so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice what he's saying, that if you are not a Christian, you are in slavery to Satan through fear of death. So do people fear death? There's a, a study done by uh, the University of Chapman, uh, Chapman University, excuse me. Every year, it's the, the greatest fears survey. They've been doing it for years. And the fear of death is actually number 15 on their list. So what does that mean? What people are afraid of is dying. Because dying is death in motion. Dying is the advancing of death. It's like when a volcano blows, right? And you see the lava coming down the side. And you know that eventually it's going to get to you and overwhelm you. See, these were the things that they said in the Chapman survey that people were afraid of. Corrupt government officials. Economic financial collapse. Russia using nuclear weapons, the U.S. becoming involved in another world war, people I love becoming seriously ill, people I love dying, biological warfare, cyber terrorism, not having enough money for the future. See, all of those things represent a destabilization of the uncertain status quo that we have in this life. That with all of them comes pain and suffering and sorrow, and ultimately death. Dying is death in motion. And all of life for the believer, non-believer is an effort to stave off death, to try to strengthen their health, right? It's an obsession. Just look at the magazines when you walk through the grocery aisle. To save up enough money as in somehow if I had enough, it would be able to save, uh, stave off death. That politics is our effort, futile effort, to create a heaven on earth, a safe haven where death cannot touch us. Or ultimately, we simply distract ourselves with uh, drink or sex or pleasure or iPhones because we don't want to lift up our head and see that lava that is coming. But you see, for the Christian, Jesus has defeated Satan. He has wrenched the power of death away from him. That death for us is a doorway to him. Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ, our champion, has defeated death, ironically, through death. And so we can taunt death 
that death no longer has its sting. Because the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. See, death gains its power over humans through sin because sin demands capital punishment as its moral penalty. And the law is not unable to arrest sin, but rather spurs it on and pronounces death as its judgment. But Christ has defanged death by fulfilling the law, by absorbing the sting of death. Notice in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He defanged death by drinking the poison to its very dregs and in its place giving us his righteousness that we would no longer have to taste the curse of death. Romans 8.37 puts it this way. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Hyper-conquerors is the Greek. Through him who loved us. But we see that death continues to exert its influence, right? Because the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But for the Christian, death in its substance has been removed. And only the shadow remains. Nobody is afraid of a shadow. For a shadow cannot block a man's pathway for even a moment. The shadow of a dog can't bite. And the shadow of a sword can't kill. So is death our friend or is death our foe? The answer is for believers, death is a friend insofar as it ushers us into the immediate presence of Christ. But insofar as it is coupled with much suffering, it remains the last enemy that will be totally vanquished when Christ comes again. If you went to school at the University of Virginia in 1960, you would be a very glum person because UVA was in the uh, throes of a 28 straight game football losing season. Not much has changed, actually. They lost their second game in 1958 and went two winless seasons before finally winning in 1961. But that's not the longest winless streak. That would be Northwestern, uh, the Wildcats of Northwestern in the early 80s who went 34 games without a win. And they had to come up with that cheer, that's all right, that's okay, we're going to be your boss someday. See, if you were a fan in the midst of that, there was no win in sight. And you never knew when or if it was going to happen. See, one of the worst things that a sports team can develop is a mindset of defeat. But that cannot be our mindset because we have a certain future and a certain victory. Many of us can interpret our days as a loss, as a defeat. For we fall short of how we know that we are meant to live. Now, we know that our sanctification, our growth in holiness, is not what determines our justification. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And yet we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We mourn because of our sin. And we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. But Jesus wants us to interpret our days not in the light of failure, but in the light of victory. For Jesus has overcome the grave, and he has rescued us, and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Every day we grow closer to inheriting the fullness of the victory of Christ. But every day here on this earth, we have a chance to practice walking by faith in the victory of Christ. It doesn't say that we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. It says we are more than conquerors now through him who loved us. We have learned the secret. We, uh, the goal of life is to learn the secret that we can do all things through him who gives us strength. To learn to not look to ourselves to live out this victorious life in Christ, but rather to seek to live in faith and obedience, looking for Christ to give us strength, to walk in the victory that is most certain for us. See, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're always carrying in our body the death of Jesus Christ, the corruption that we face right now, so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. We're always being given over to death so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. In the same way as Christ gained the victory over Satan and death through his death, he calls us to die to ourselves, to our flesh, and to live to God. But we are imperfect in this world, and he knows that. That this world is just a warm-up for in the inevitable victory that is to come. So God calls us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on him. Because the grace of God gives us a certain victory and a certain future, let us live with a certain purpose. And that's how Paul finishes this passage in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He gives the Corinthians and us three commandments. And the first is to be steadfast and immovable. What does he mean there? What is he referencing? He's really referencing, if you go all the way back to, uh, I mean, this chapter at the beginning, verses 1 and 2, to stand in the gospel in which you stand and through which you are being saved. In other words, be steadfast and immovable in the truth and the hope of what Jesus Christ has done in you, not what you will do in him. Do not let anything else to knock you loose from the moorings of the testimony that has been given to you about Christ. He's saying that we must rehearse the gospel, 
We must continue to go back to the scriptures. We must continue to go to God for reassurance that what he has done has the effect that he promises and that he will come through for us in the end. Here's a good question for you to process. What do you think about when you don't have anything else to think about? Think about that. What do you think about when you don't have anything else to think about? I know what I think about. I think about who I am in Christ. And who is he to me? And what does he think of me? Because these are the primary questions that I must have settled in my heart. If I am to make any advance, they are all that matters in the end. For with them come a certain future and a certain victory. We must be steadfast and immovable. And we are also called to abound in the work of the Lord. This word abound also could be translated to excel. Paul uses it in chapter 14, verse 12, and it's connected to building up the church. We have a work to do while we are here to excel in, to abound in. And it's a twofold work. The first is to be an ambassador to this world. God, through Christ, has given us a great co-mission, a mission that we are on with him to go and make disciples. That we are missionaries. That my job, amidst doing my job and pursuing my degree and taking my tests, I am God's ambassador on a mission to build up his church by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm not only an ambassador of the world, but I'm also a minister to the church. Did you know that you are a missionary and a minister? Well, Carlos, I thought you were the minister. Well, no, I'm a pastor. The word minister means servant. I am a pastor who ministers, but we are all ministers. We're missionaries and ministers, and God has called us to not only build up his church by reaching out to those who are around us, but to strengthen the church by using the gifts and talents that God has given us to help our brothers and sisters who are around us grow in faith. As the scriptures say, let us consider how we may stir one another up toward love and good deeds. He calls us to be steadfast and immovable in the gospel, abounding in the work of the Lord, and here's why. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The word in vain in Greek is kenos, which means empty, pointless. And what the scripture is saying that everything that is done in the Lord, everything that is done for Christ lasts and is used to build up his kingdom. Notice he doesn't say everything uh, that, that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain, but rather your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That the way you live right now matters. That the gifts that you do, no matter how small, a kind word, a prayer, cleaning up the nursery, prepping communion trays, picking up the bagels, 
God is using to build up his church. Indeed, Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, I tell you, by no means will lose his reward. You know, we're not all promised the same thing in this life, right? Some of us will know much joy. Others of us will know much sorrow. Some will be given fame and fortune. Others, nothing but obscurity and maybe poverty. But one thing we are all promised is that our life will soon end and we will stand before Christ in a certain future and a certain victory and have an opportunity to see how we use the days and our words and our relationships and our dollars and our skills and opportunities to build up God's church and how it was not in vain. So whatever is going on in your life, know this. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a certain future and it speeds towards us. You have a certain victory. Live in that and live in the certain purpose that God has for you. Because in the end, only what is done for him will last. Because the grace of God gives us a certain future and a certain victory. Let us live with a certain purpose. Let's pray. God, thank you that you sent Jesus Christ, that our victory is in him, that our future is guaranteed. And you call us to live in that, not moved from the hope that we have in the gospel. Lord, help us to live those kind of lives. Help us to stand firmly on our faith in you and in nothing else. And Lord, give us that energy and that spirit to abound in your work as we reach out to the world around us in need. And we strengthen one another as we journey together um, on this uh, trip of faith. For we know that this labor that you have called us to is not in vain. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.